Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Public Policy. My name is Tevi Troy, and each week we look at a new book in the public policy realm to decide what it tells us about public policy in the U.S. today. This week we're looking at Instant City, Life and Death in Karachi by NPR's Steve Inskeep. Steve has said he is the most listened to radio program in America. And today we're going to hear him talk about his book, about why he decided to take this approach of looking at one day in the life of Karachi but also uses it to take a broader look at the modern history of Pakistan and why it matters to us in the United States. Steve Inskeep, welcome to New Books in Public Policy. It's an honor to be here. Thanks very much. We're talking today about your book, Instant City, Life and Death in Karachi, but first I'd like to get a little sense of who you are and how you came to write this book. Well, I'm a reporter and program host for NPR, and I suppose the book grew out of that experience. I covered the war in Afghanistan and 2001 and 2002, and actually passed through the city of Karachi for the first time, just on my way to Afghanistan, on my way back, but later was assigned to spend time in Pakistan. I covered court proceedings relating to the killer of Daniel Pearl, um, and ended up spending more time there. I've always been interested in cities. Uh, I'm a city guy. I've, I've lived in, in a lot of cities that I've loved, and I will do a lot of cities that I've been fascinated by, even ones that were deeply, deeply troubled. And Karachi, to me, gradually began to seem like a place where you could explore a lot of the problems as well as the possibilities in growing cities around the world, especially the developing world. Well, you say troubled cities, and uh, Karachi certainly deserves that designation from what you said in the book. Uh, You you basically start by looking at a bombing, a deadly bombing in Karachi, and you kind of talk about that day, and from there you go on to describe the history of the city and how the city developed in the way it has in in a very uh, expansive way. The the city was only about 500,000, I believe you say, back in 47, and now it's over 13 million. Can you talk a little bit about why you took that approach to the book? Yeah, well, I was trying to take gigantic global trends and, and get them down to the get them down to a human level. Um, I, I, I was looking at the fact that there are cities around the world that have grown rather like Karachi has. It is, as you say, something in the neighborhood of 30 times larger than it was in 1947. And they've been conducting a census. We're awaiting the results and we'll see if it's actually a little bit larger still. Uh, but in any case, it's big. It's much bigger than it was. And that is rather normal. There are cities that are 10 times larger, 20 times larger, 40 or 50 times larger. I think if there was a list of the most rapidly growing cities on Earth, I'm not even sure that Karachi would be on it, depending on the time frame that is taken. So tremendous growth, which reflects a lot of things that have happened in the world. The population growth people have been talking about lately with the UN's designation anyway of the 7 billion mark. And maybe they're a little off, but you know, there's a lot of people out there. There's also the sprawl of cities. They reach out and grab and, and, and swallow up villages, and that has certainly happened in Karachi as well. 
where places that were not part of, of the city uh, are absorbed by it. But the most interesting thing to me really was migration uh, and the way that people moved to cities. That's the way that so many American cities grew in the 19th and early, early 20th centuries especially. That's the way that some American cities are growing now. And I define an instant city as a place that has grown so much since World War II that you would scarcely recognize it, places that have grown substantially more rapidly than the population of the country to which they belong. And Los Angeles counts as such a city. Phoenix absolutely counts as such a city. Dallas and Houston counts, count as cities like that. Uh, it's, it's a dramatic thing to witness, and it's even more dramatic in the developing world, and it's driven by migration. And the reason that's interesting to me, first, is that you have people volunteering to go to cities that in many cases we would consider appalling. But to them, it is an opportunity, or if not an opportunity, at least something better than the nightmare from which they fled. And also that you have all kinds of people coming together in a single place from different locations, with different religious beliefs, with different ethnicities, speaking different languages, with different visions of what the city should be. And some of those visions collided on that day that you mentioned in December of 2009. You had a Shia Muslim, a minority Muslim religious procession that was bombed, and authorities ultimately blamed it on a group with links to Al-Qaeda and claimed that there was such evidence, although for reasons we can talk about, it would be hard to prove that in a court of law at this minute. Um, and after that was a series of other events. Men appeared on the streets and set hundreds of shops on fire, wholesale shops and warehouses on fire in the heart of the business district of the city, which led to tremendous controversy, political controversy, involving the major political parties, which are ethnically based, and involving all sorts of pressures on the city government. You have all these different groups of people who are contending with each other, pushing and pulling against each other for uh, power, money, and land, in an atmosphere where the rule of law sometimes doesn't exist. Yeah, you mentioned the, the fires, and at one point you talk about this guy, Nisar Belak, who uh, suggested that the MQM, which is one of these political parties, had something to do with the fires, and he was killed not long after. Is that kind of a common occurrence? I mean, is, there a, is there free speech in the way we envision it in Pakistan? Well, uh, there, there is certainly a degree of, of free speech in the Mark Twain sense of everybody has free speech as long as they're not foolish enough to use it. Now, the Nassar Baloch case that you refer to uh, is a gentleman who was involved in uh, another issue, if I, if I may clarify, uh, having to do with the building of homes on what appeared to have been designated as a national park, land that appeared to have been designated as parkland. And this is kind of normal in Karachi. When we talk about being beyond the rule of law, this is the kind of thing that can happen. And in my investigation, it did appear the city government had something to do with it. Nassar Baloch, however, publicly attacked the ruling party of the city at that moment, the MQM, blamed them for having a role uh, in this, and in fact was killed the next day in a crime that we should be fair at all involved is not solved. And that is rather normal in Karachi, that you don't find out with any definitiveness who is responsible for a crime like this. I would think that if you were a police officer, you would have to ask some questions of the MQM. The MQM, I think, would point you to other groups, ethnic groups that were involved. You did have a clash of different ethnic groups, both of which seemed to think that it was important to them to possess this park 
or at least keep it away from the other side. This is the kind of dispute you have all over the city, and I think in other cities uh, that you might you might trace around the world. And again, what makes it so extreme in Karachi is that there's just no way to mediate this. People have no faith in the government, and in some parts of the city, the writ of the government just does not extend, as people would say in Pakistan. So you're of course right that that, that was the MQM was uh, the incident was a part, but they were also accused in the book. You say as, as someone who some people think set the fires. Oh, absolutely. Are they? Uh, will you call them a nefarious force in Pakistan? And if well, you say that on Pakistani radio without uh, without getting in physical trouble? Well, you know, I, I I think that everybody speaks carefully about the MQM and whether that's fair or not. People do speak carefully about that organization in Pakistan. Um, the MQM was accused by some people, uh, without evidence, to be fair, of setting the fires in the center of Karachi. The conspiracy theory and conspiracy in Pakistan was that there had been an effort to clear off real estate in order to make room for some other kind of development and that the city government had a hand in this. Um, so, so there are constant conspiracy theories of that sort. But what I'm trying to say about free speech, I guess, which is to your question, is that you can say things in Pakistan, and there is a robust free press. It is actually freer than it was a decade ago. The cable TV channels have been unleashed, which simply did not exist a decade ago. Pervez Musharraf, the last military ruler, whatever you give him good or bad, uh, freed up cable TV. There used to be essentially one television channel in the country, and now there might be a hundred, many news channels in many languages, Urdu, English, and several others. So you, you have a debate, a boisterous debate, but it's very clear when you spend time with Pakistani journalists that they have to be careful about what they say. Journalists do get killed, and journalists do have to pick their moments when they want to risk being killed, and when they want to just leave some facts out of a story, because it might offend someone and, and, and killed, and that isn't the battle that they want to fight. So people have to be selective about it, even though journalists are clearly courageous there, and some of them have been killed quite, quite uh, publicly this year. As an American who is, uh, went multiple times to Pakistan in the course of you know, getting interested in this book and then in terms of writing the book, were you afraid? Were you concerned for your own safety? Oh, I mean, you know, I don't want to make too much of that. I mean, you have to be cautious when you go to a place like this. Um, I, I have been told by U.S. government uh, officials that I, in going after this book, got a perspective that really wasn't available to them because uh, large parts of a city like Karachi are off limits to American diplomats. There's no, no, no go zones. They're not considered safe enough to visit under any circumstances. Now, I am sure that there are uh, people in the CIA or in various other agencies who get a good look at whatever they need to look at. I don't want to suggest that. But, but by and large, there are a lot of people in the U.S. government who are not supposed to travel these, these places that I went. With that said, I think there are more dangerous places. It's been more dangerous to report from Iraq, for example, where I've been in the past and where my colleagues have been a great, uh, great danger. Libya is probably a more dangerous place. Karachi is a place where you just you, you have to you have to be careful. You have to think about who you're going to see. Make sure you know who they are. You go to see them. You talk to them, and you go away again. Uh, and with that said, I should be clear that there's a great culture of hospitality in the city. And even in this time of really, really poisonous U.S.-Pakistani relations, uh, I have been well-received in the city, and people seemed actually eager to tell their story to an outsider. Hey, you mentioned that in 2009 there were over 1,700 murders in 
Karachi. But you also say that it's not necessarily because, or not even largely because of Muslim extremism, that there are a lot of other things going on in addition to the Muslim extremism, uh, uh, other ethnic hatred, um, crime, uh, other things going on there. Oh, absolutely. And in both ways, I think they're symbolic of cities at large. And again, I'm trying to take this as an example of many things happening in the world. One of the things happening in the world is absolutely uh, Islamist extremism, and people get a severe dose of it when they live in Karachi. But there are more killings that seem to have to do with ethnic disputes. You have political parties that are divided along ethnic lines, and conflicts between those political parties become deadly. At some point, uh, you had hundreds of people killed in what were believed to be these kinds of, of party battles just this past summer, for example. You do have a lot of organized crime. The organized crime, in turn, may be connected with the political parties, and the organized crime is connected with the real estate market. This is a city like so many in the developing world where vast amounts of the economy are off the books and formal and vast amounts of real estate are taken from government possession or someone else's possession without permission and sold, chopped up into home lots and sold with police officers paid not to notice. And in fact, by 2010, when I was visiting some of these areas, it became clear in my conversations with people that the bribery of the police had become standardized. There was a standard fee per home lot that you would pay pay to the commander of the nearest police station. Uh, so, So you have all these different kinds of, of illegal activity going on, some of which actually, according to their, uh, according to advocates for the poor, are not so bad for the poor. Maybe the poor get housing out of the end of this. Maybe the poor get a job out of this. But but the battle to dominate it can be very very deadly. Yeah. Well, one thing that I found very interesting is your book is you're talking about modern current Karachi, but you also go back and tell the history of the city, or at least since the the country has been. Uh, the current country of Pakistan. You start with um, Muhammad Ali Jinnah, who um, was a, sort of a, an Anglophile, I guess. He had uh, over 200 British suits, you said. He looked a little like Burt Lancaster. Uh, can you talk a little bit about him and how he kind of got Pakistan on its current path and perhaps how he's oh, yeah. done things differently? Yeah. Uh, one of the amazing figures in South Asian history, really one of the amazing figures in 20th century history, and I think emblematic of the way that cities have changed in this era since the end of World War II. He was right at the beginning of that process. Jinnah had been a fighter for Indian independence, and I mean fighter in the legal sense. He was a lawyer, he was a brilliant lawyer, and an, a man who argued and advocated for Indian independence for, for many years um, in different ways. But he had a special place in the movement for independence because he was a leader of Muslims. He was a Shia Muslim. He was what was called an ambassador for Hindu-Muslim unity for a while between the Hindus who were the majority in South Asia and British India and the Muslims who were a minority. Uh, And then he became a more distinct leader of Muslims who ultimately accepted a separate country. Now, this, I I think, is, is, is representative in so many ways of events that have kicked off the explosive growth of cities around the world. You have this process of decolonization. And it happened in South Asia. It was going to happen very soon in in Africa. It was happening in a somewhat different form in East Asia with all the, the wars and communist uh, civil wars and communist uprisings that would follow. And, and all of these events in one way or another would transform ethnic landscapes and political landscapes and economic landscapes in ways that opened the door 
to mass migration to cities and opened the door to massive economic change. You say that before Jinnah died, he, he made a prediction that each government of Pakistan would be worse than its predecessor. Would you say that <laughs> that, that, that prediction ha, has come true? And it also fits yeah. in with something else you say earlier in the book, that uh, Pakistan is not a poor country, but a poorly managed country. This seems to be kind of a, an endemic and, and consistent problem. Oh, yeah. I mean, those are two of my favorite quotes from the book. One came from a Karachi businessman. The other is attributed to Jinnah, according to the father of a man that I uh, I met with, a man who was old enough to know Jinnah himself. And that's part of the, the wonder of this story for me, is that it is epic history taking place on an epic scale, but it happened so quickly that I can go and talk with people who have witnessed so many parts of it. Now, I'm not sure if I would exactly say that every government of Pakistan has been worse than the one that would precede it, that has, has preceded it. I think a better way to describe the results in Pakistan since Muhammad Ali Jinnah died in 1948 is this endless game of Groundhog Day. There is an ineffective civilian government that struggles with the contradictions of this country and is deemed a failure and is replaced in a military coup. Then the military government starts all over again. We'll quite often abolish a constitution, rewrite the constitution, change all the rules, start from zero. A few years will pass and the military government is seen to be a failure and there will be protests rising in the country. The military is forced out or dies. A civilian government comes in and the pattern is repeated again. Um, And the great struggle of Pakistan right now is to somehow get beyond that pattern. You have a country where there has been a free election in early 2008 and where there is a government which is seen as as shameful. That's a word that Pakistanis themselves will use a lot for the People's Party-led government of President Asif Ali Zardari. Uh, And yet even though it is shameful, there are many people, shameful in the words of Pakistanis, I should say, there are many who would say, let's let it finish its term. Let this government finish its term and see if we can have an election and have an orderly transition of power to something else, which amazingly is something that this country has never had. And that's an important thing to understand about about Pakistan is that they've just forever been starting over. And and I I don't know how you would make a lot of progress under those circumstances. What do you think of the prospects for making progress? And did you see anything in your book that kind of made you hopeful that this this pattern could change? Well, there are a few things. And one is that people seem to understand, at least in the elites, precisely what I just told you. Uh, and I think maybe even more deeply than the elites, people seem to understand that there was a democratic system and that it was important to get the system function, to let the system work, that if people are unhappy with the government that they have, the thing to do is to vote in a new government or consider the alternatives and maybe keep the current. Who knows? Another five years in power, that's not impossible. And so, so, so there seems to be a lot of focus on that reality. Uh, there have actually been people in the last few months, people here in my book who have in the last few months called for a return to military rule. There's a gentleman named Abdul Sattar Edi who is almost kind of a, considered a saint, virtually a living saint in Pakistan because he runs this ambulance service and other charities that have been very helpful to people. But Edi despises politicians. And over the summer, he was publicly saying at a press conference it was time for the army to come in, kill all the politicians and take over. He was very frustrated about the tremendous violence in his city. But with exceptions like that, there seem to be a lot of people who are waiting for the next election, 
which is likely to come beginning of 2013, possibly a tiny bit before, um, and and waiting to see what the possibilities are. And in fact, politicians are lining up right now, for better or worse, to get their chance. One thing that I found kind of depressing in the book was you talked about how it was around page 80, where you, you say that there was a sense that there was a clash of minorities and that once Muslims and Hindus, let's say, were uh, were separated, it wouldn't be as much of a problem. But then once the so-called minorities were gone and you had a mostly Muslim population, you found that there's a lot of diversity among the Muslims, and that led to um, ethnic tensions as well. Um, it, you know, is there a way you know, outside of one single family to get beyond ethnic difficulties and strife? Oh, my gosh. I mean, I think you've, you've summarized it really well. I mean, the, the, the place became, the city that I study became less diverse when the Hindus fled or were driven out, but it didn't become more stable. And you said it exactly right. People found new divisions among themselves, divisions of religion, religion, divisions of language, insiders versus outsiders. Uh, I think that there is just a lesson there to be found, not in saying how are we going to avoid ethnic differences, racial differences, religious differences, but how do we embrace them? How do we make a strength out of them? Uh, the United States has had its own uh, terrible struggles with, with various ethnic, racial, and religious differences, but has found ways to make a strength out of that. Jinnah, the founder of Pakistan, whom you mentioned before, actually gave a speech in 1947 in which he listed Great Britain as, a, as an example to follow. He said this was a country that had terrible divisions between Protestants and Catholics but that they weren't fighting wars over that anymore. Now, he was overlooking the exception of Northern Ireland, which was still a severe problem. Then, but by and large, he was telling the truth. There are any number of examples of countries where people of different faiths, people of different ethnicity, people of different races have found strength in their diversity rather than finding weakness and have found things to unify around rather than things to divide over. That's actually what the founder of Pakistan wanted. He gave a speech in 1947 in which he called on people to work together as equal citizens, regardless of color, caste, or creed. It's an amazing speech to consider uh, when you think about so many things that have happened in Pakistan since then that were contrary to that. You mentioned the positive side that, let's say, Great Britain has found a way to work through ethnic hatreds of the past, but it's also a reminder to us that we in America are not above this kind of thing and have had our own terrible ethnic divisions. You have that great section by Mike Royko on page 168 where you talk about somebody growing up in Chicago and if he strays one block the wrong way, the Polish kids will beat him up and another block the Italian kids will beat him up and you know, who knows what the black kids will do to him. I mean, you use sort of, uh, I guess, nastier words from a bygone era, but the, the, the sentiment is there that you, know, you, you had to be careful of ethnic hatreds in the U.S. in the past yeah, as well. Yeah, and I... Yeah, and I don't want to suggest that they're exactly the same. Chicago is not exactly the same as Karachi. Uh, but there is something basic and human. I mean, you have different kinds of people coming from different places, speaking different languages especially, and clustering defensively in their various neighborhoods. And, of course, those neighborhoods, as anybody knows who loves cities, can, can also be just wonderful places. I mean, there's different, different kinds of of life, different culture, different music, different food, just different life stories that you run into when you meet people in different places. But of course, ultimately, you want to get to the point where it's not actually dangerous to cross the dividing line from your neighborhood into the into the next person person's neighborhood. And from Royko's testimony, there was a period in Chicago where that was not really 
all that possible in a lot of neighborhoods. It's certainly a good thing for Chicago that they got past that. Right, and not just Chicago. Remember, there's the movie in um, the Gangs of New York. I guess the Scorsese movie uh, a oh, while yeah. back. Um, and, and that actually reminds me of a, a kind of coup that you have on the back of your book when you have the people who've given your uh, your book a plug. One of the people is David Simon, who's the creator <laughs> of The Wire and, and Treme. And these are cities that have some real trouble here in the U.S. Baltimore is a city that, that there's certainly, um, I guess, there are racial tensions they talk about in the book, but also um, there are burnt out sections of the city and there's a lot of poverty and, and uh, odd growth that could have been handled better by public policy. New Orleans also is a city that has seen its share of trouble. Did you think about that kind of comparison with the U.S.? Obviously, it's at a different level, as you said before, with Chicago. But did you think that the U.S. has its issues as well in terms of an urban environment? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I, I, I love the fact that David Simon was generous enough to, uh, to to write that comment for the back and that he liked the book. Um, and, you know, I, I, I thought of him because I love cities. I mean, even though we're talking about grave and difficult situations here, I hope that there is a certain joy that comes through this story or enjoyment that comes through this story of just learning how a place works and learning how people live in it and seeing a civilization for what it is, the bright sides as well as the dark spots. And that is absolutely what David Simon uh, does in his work, which I followed for so many years, going back to his work in Baltimore and, uh, you know, and that he continues to do. This is a guy who clearly loves cities and has a sense of place about the work that he does. I mean, his, the, the Treme series could not be taking place anywhere but New Orleans. It is utterly, utterly New Orleans. There's something special about a lot of cities that when you go there, you you wouldn't wake up, you know, a little jet lagged and think that you're somewhere else. You would know that you're there. Karachi is such a place. And I wanted it to be a representative, a kind of universal story in a way that would represent what a lot of us face as urban dwellers, uh, even though in Karachi the problems are in quite extreme form. You talk a bit in the book about uh, Beirut and this sort of attempt for um, Karachi to be like Beirut. I guess Beirut is sort of a, a symbol in the Muslim world of a city that can also be, I guess, for a time it was cosmopolitan and, and a real yeah. um, a, a real attractor to European vacationers. So can you talk a little bit about that and then the decline oh, yeah. of nightclubs and casinos yeah. and cinemas? Oh, oh, totally. I mean, there's, there, there's this crazy story in Karachi of a guy who tried to build a casino and actually succeeded in building a casino. And I think that it, as crazy as this story is, it catches another thing that's universal. All of the cities that have been growing around world have been trying to, many of them anyway, have been trying to figure out what makes them unique. And they've been trying to attract the really rapidly growing global elites. Now, you can argue whether that's a good idea or a bad idea, that sort of Richard Florida attracting their creative class or just attracting people who have money to spend. But cities compete in this way. Uh, New York is a huge winner. I mean, they get people from all over the world who are creative and want to be creative or who just have money and they're willing to pay whatever it takes to buy Manhattan real estate. New York is a huge winner. London is a huge winner. There are other cities that struggle to be winners, and Karachi has struggled for decades. In the 70s, yeah, they thought that this was an opportunity for their city to be a great entertainment center and get all those Arab oil sheikhs who were newly uh, newly wealthy selling oil to us, frankly, or selling oil to the growing world economy. And so, yeah, this guy who had been a nightclub owner, who was a purveyor of dancing girls, um, got 
the political connections. He was close to the prime minister of time and was able to uh, build a casino on the waterfront and was ready to open, had it all furnished and everything in 1977 when there was a military coup, one of these moments of starting over that I talked about. And the guy who replaced the prime minister, Zulfikar Ali Bhutto, was a man named Zia al-Haq, who was a conservative Islamist and undertook a program of Islamization in society and ultimately did not allow that casino to open. It was against Islam as he saw it. And Karachi lost an opportunity as that development died and other related planned developments died. And Karachi did not become the next Beirut, did not become the next big entertainment center for the Arab world or for the, the, the Muslim elites. Dubai got that role instead. And Dubai has become this glittering, spectacular entertainment center. Whether you like it or not, it's made an awful lot of money for its creators. And people in places like Karachi go scrambling after it today. The very piece of property where that casino once stood that never opened, there is now a Dubai-style development of office towers and a million-square-foot shopping mall under construction. Amazing. Uh, you, you talk a little bit about Zia, who's, uh, I think, a fascinating character. And he took over after Budo cheated in an election that you say he probably would have won. So here you yeah. had a civilian person who was educated in the U.S., at, at USC. And, and I think you, there, there's an interesting shift there from sort of an Anglophilic to, to a U.S.-centered, um, educated elite in Pakistan. And then yeah. he... And then so he cheated when he didn't have to. And look what happened. Sort of like uh, Nixon with Watergate. I mean, he was going to win that election big. Why did he have to do it? <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think you know, Stanley Wolpert, who's one of his uh, most distinguished biographers, writes that Bhutto wanted a supermajority because he wanted to make changes to the Constitution. Now, this was a Constitution that Bhutto himself had forced uh, through the parliament just a few years before. But he was a guy who was forever improvising, forever changing things. And he wanted to make sure that he had absolute power and not just a majority. And it seems, according to Wolpert's account, that Bhutto's lieutenants took that instruction uh, rather too far and committed not just fraud, but blindingly obvious fraud, which became a rallying point for, for Bhutto's opposition. He was, by all accounts, a very popular man. Uh, his face is still seen on political posters and billboards today. That is how powerful his legacy is. His daughter, Benazir Bhutto, uh, became, of course, a rallying point for democracy in the 1980s. And her face is still on political billboards today, even though she was killed, as you know, of course, in 2007. A very, very powerful personal connection with the people for Zulfikar Ali Bhutto. But, but his, his party committed what seemed to be at the time to be obvious fraud, created the opportunity for opposition to build, and ultimately left an opening for the military to step in and, quote, restore order, unquote. And they promised to hold new elections in a few months, and that never happened. Yeah, and again, a recurring theme of the promised elections that don't necessarily happen. Uh, yeah. Well, Steve, you've been incredibly generous with your time. Uh, we have time now for the signature question here on New Books and Public Policy, which is the final question I ask all the interviewees, which is, what have you learned as a result of this book that we can apply to U.S. policy? So stated another way, what policy should the U.S. pursue vis-a-vis via, via Pakistan based on what you learned in the writing of this book? Well, I think that um, I learned first that there are not short answers 
as I mentioned, I think that a great tragedy of Pakistan's history has been seeking quick answers, quite commonly through military coups, and people just end up having to start over and start over and start over again, and quite possibly uh, building on existing flawed systems might have led to more progress. I mean, that's essentially what India has done right across the border. The uh, implication of that for the United States, of course, is that the United States has often taken shortcuts in Pakistan and has often dealt with the military, which seemed to be the institution that could get things done. But in my research going back decades, going back to the 1950s, you have presidents as long ago as Dwight Eisenhower expressing frustration that they have supported the military to the exclusion of all else and that it was the worst possible policy that they could follow. So stability seems important to me. Patience seems important to me. It seems to me important for an outsider to recognize what they can and cannot accomplish. This is an extraordinarily complex society where I think you would have to be cautious about utterly changing it. And it doesn't seem to me right now that, that the Obama administration or, frankly, the Bush administration before it has had that vision for Pakistan the way they once did with Iraq, that they were going to swiftly change it into a particular kind of, of country. There does seem to be less ambition for Pakistan, and I think that might be wise. It's a really, really large country and really complex. And my final point comes off the complexity. Uh, we come to Pakistan as a country and want simple, straightforward things. You know, let, let's go after the Haqqanis. Let, where's Osama bin Laden? Things like that. But we put these requests into an extremely complex situation where it's often hard to read people's motives often hard to read the situation they're really in, which is why I think that we get frustrated with the Pakistanis about lying and deceiving and so forth. And sometimes what they're doing is essentially balancing interests. Sometimes they're lying for the benefit of the United States, saying that they oppose drone strikes, for example, which gets some political heat off them, but privately they really don't care they, they, they approve and they're fine. Um, and that there are there are frustrations that build up just because it is an extraordinarily complicated place. And so I think an appreciation of that complexity is useful and patience is useful, even though we are in a situation where it's a war and patience is often the thing that you have the least of, that you can afford the least of. Well, we're going to have to leave it there, but this is fascinating because we've gone a lot longer. The book is Instant City, Life and Death in Karachi. The author is Steve Inskeep. Thank you for joining us on New Books in Public Policy. I hope you've enjoyed my interview with Steve Inskeep, author of Instant City, Life and Death in Karachi. Steve's book is a fascinating combination of journalism, demography, and history. He goes to Karachi and attempts to explain some of the big picture issues that are driving the massive growth of that city, but also Pakistan's development in the world vis-a-vis the U.S. and how the U.S handle its relations with that often contentious country. I hope you've enjoyed the interview, and I suggest you check out the book, which is highly readable and worth your time. In the meantime, this is Tevi Troy signing off for New Books in Public Policy, and as always, please keep reading. <laughs>